real know-it-all? Do you annoy your family by shouting the answers while watching Jeopardy? Do you drive people crazy when you start a sentence with, well, actually? Well, guess what? You can go fact yourself. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Go Fact Yourself, the show where we quiz the smartest people we know and find out why they love what they love. I'm Helen Hong, and now recording from our homes in Los Angeles, for better or worse, here is our moderator, J. Keith Van Stratton. Thank you so much, Helen. Wonderful to see you. Nice to see you. Now, Helen, I couldn't help but notice a subtle change in yes. your opening today. You said our homes for better or for worse. What did you mean by that? Astute listeners will know that I have been not in my home for a couple of months now because I had an entire wall that fell apart and rain coming in through the roof and all kinds of homeowner problems. Yeah, and no, now, I'm not a homeowner, but I do believe that walls and roofs are an important element. Walls and roofs, like, yes, functioning mm-hmm. roofs mm-hmm. and standing walls that yes. don't have giant holes in them. Yes, yeah. quite important for a home. And so we were uh, staying in an Airbnb, my sister and my nephew and I and Dodger, my dog. Now I am back in my home and should I be? Probably not because... Oh, no. They're still working on the roof, and I just took a video uh, out of my kitchen window, and just chunks of roof were just flying off. There were oh, men gosh. on men on the roof, and just roof chunks, roof yeah. chunks raining. It, it was it raining men? No, it was raining <laughs> roof chunks over here, and Yikes. it's dusty and loud and. <sighs> Yeah. Well, I'm sorry you're going through the trauma. Uh, please, if you do find yourself needing to take a moment and evade a roof chunk, please do take that time. Thank you. And also, if any of our listeners, uh, maybe as a bonus this year for the Max Fun Drive, you could win one of Helen Hong's roof chunks. Oh, I have plenty to spare. <laughs> I have plenty to spare. If anyone wants a chunk of my roof, they're just all over the side of my house right now. So uh, come on over, and I will give you a roof chunk for free. Wow. This is how we give back to our listeners. (laughs) Well, today on Go Fact Yourself, two guests will compete to answer questions about facts they know, facts they might not know, and, frankly, facts they should know. Plus, we'll meet actual experts on two very different topics. And finally, we'll declare one of our guests the winner of today's show. Let's get started and meet today's guest, Helen, who is up first. She is a comedian and writer who has played around the world world, including a tour of sold-out shows across Australia. It's Ting Lim. Hello, Ting Lim. Hi, how are you guys doing? Very well. Thank you so much for joining us. Tell us where you're joining us from. I am from Brisbane, sunny Brisbane. Sunny Brisbane, Australia. Well, your Instagram bio describes yourself as a Singaporean comedian stuck in Brisbane. How did you end up in Brisbane, and are you indeed stuck? Do you need help? No, I do not need help. I'm stuck here willingly. (laughs) I came to Brisbane as a student in Australia, studying loved it here and just continued to stay here. Oh, very after cool. That. You've toured all around Australia. You just finished a tour across Australia. How much had you seen already of the places that you visited and how much was new to you? Oh, there were so many parts that were new to me because Australia is so big. There's so many undiscovered parts for me. Like I've been to a mining town. I've been to a mining site going out into the outback. That was really interesting seeing like the kangaroos, how big the eagles can get. Like it's, it's amazing. Yeah. There are a lot of things in Australia that can kill you. It's, it's uh, yes. one, of the, one of the most interesting <laughs> things about the place. What was it like playing and doing comedy in these small mining towns? It was really fun. It was really fun. Everyone came out. They really loved comedy because they don't really get live entertainment out there. So they really appreciate it 
they bring you cupcakes and they, they buy you alcohol. Yeah. Wow. They're really lovely people. I think in all the years I've done stand-up comedy, I can't remember an incident where I've been brought cupcakes. And now I'm like, what are you doing right that I'm doing wrong? That nobody's Just bringing me cupcakes. <laughs> show up to towns where they have no shows. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a new show that you're going to be premiering at some festivals in Australia. Tell us about that. So it is my solo show called Everything or Noting that sold out this year at the Brisbane Comedy Festival. And I'm taking it next year to the Adelaide Fringe and the Melbourne International Comedy Festival. Very cool. And this isn't just a stand-up show. You're, you're telling about your life as well. It's autobiographical. Yeah, yeah. Like my stand-up is autobiographical. And I also talk about how I struggle learning Mandarin characters and I do a bit on that as well like the simplified writing and the traditional writing so it's mm -hmm. a, there's a bit of stand-up and culture points about it as well yeah you did a previous show I read it was called a rice Odyssey and and what some of the, what some of the critics were talking about it, I thought was so interesting it wasn't just doing jokes but actually talking about being lonely and about how you get to a new country and and that's a that's a real adjustment there's some real some real hurt that somehow comes in there I don't know any other way to do stand up but to talk about my own experiences and my perspective so mm -hmm. I just talked about that and I feel like talking about how it is normal to feel lonely at times is so important because no one really talks about that. And then last thing I want to ask you about, Ting, uh, you are from Singapore. Singapore is known for being very particular about how things are kept as far as cleanliness. And I understand that you actually got caught up in that with a little bit of a criminal past. Why did you have to bring that up right now? Yes, I was... <laughs> I was caught littering <gasps> in Singapore and I had to attend court when I was 16 and it was really full on just being in court by myself. <laughs> was it chewing gum? Was it a Starbucks cup? Like yeah. what was the what was the crime? Well, what was your drug of choice back then? <laughs> well, it was it was a cigarette butt. <gasps> oh, dang. Uh -oh. It was, <laughs> it was uh -oh. raining and I didn't put it in the bin. I walked away and the guy came out of the bushes and he was like, hey, where's your ID? And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> and then I, I went off to court and had to do, had to clean up the beach on the weekend for 12 hours. Wow. And uh, how did wow. how did your family react to you being such a scofflaw? Oh, my dad loved it. He laughed when he <laughs> saw the letter. And my family rocked up and started taking photos of it and said, and said you should never litter. That's why you should not litter. <laughs> but they made it a family affair. And what, what happened to those photos? It's up on the wall. They were like, yeah, remember the time you littered? Yeah, that's what you get. <laughs> There's no compassion. That's why they call her the bad girl of Australian comedy. <laughs> Ting Lim, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Helen, against whom will Ting be competing? He is a singer, songwriter, and author who's released several albums with the band Soul Coughing as a solo artist and with his band Ghost of Room. It's Mike Doty. Hello, Mike Doty. Hello, how are you? Very well, so happy to have you. Good you're, to see you. You're joining us from Memphis, I believe, today. I'm in Memphis, Tennessee. Excellent. And you also are just off of a tour, right? You just finished touring with your band? I did some solo shows, and then um, I did uh, a residency in Brooklyn. There's like an improvised music piece that Ghost of Room does, and we did it with Vernon Reed, Mark Rebo, Billy Martin, a bunch of other people. That's amazing. Mike, have you ever been arrested for littering? For littering, no. I've done, I mean, if cigarette butts are littering, yeah, I've thrown a lot of cigarette butts in a lot of untoward places. <laughs> what is your secret? I don't know, not being in Singapore. 
Yeah, that really seems to be the key difference. <laughs> yeah. Move to Australia. Yeah. You mentioned you've been doing this residency with improvised music, and your latest album, the second album with Ghost of Room, does that take some of the improvised music that you use? Well, no, that's more structured. It's mm-hmm. more based around songs, but certainly in the arrangements, it's me and my partner, Scrap Livingston, constantly writing on the fly. So, yeah. You are creating new material for fans who support you on Patreon. You promised Patreon members one new song a week. Yes. How many songs has that led you to make? 403. Whoa. At least. Yeah, I've been doing it for a lot of years. Oh, my gosh. Do you ever get stuck or do you? Uh, I, I think a lot of people would think that writing 403 songs, I mean, maybe 402, but once you cross that threshold. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you have good weeks and you have less good weeks. But honestly, there's a lot of good weeks, man. Oh, that's awesome. And I think as a songwriter, it's not like an accelerated writing process. It is an accelerated finishing process. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's sort of where the craftsmanship comes into it. Tunes laying around with a missing third verse and, you know, no bridge and... You really have to like finish everything up. Oh, that's interesting. So you is... find you find the challenge more to finish a song than to start a song. Oh yeah, big time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I started like thirty of them yesterday, but you know, <laughs> I'll finish one. Now, uh, with the band and as a solo artist, you've had a bunch of songs on soundtracks. Uh, you've had Many. stuff in uh, in Bones and Veronica Mars, Grey's Anatomy, um, and mm-hmm. then I, I see on Twitter that you think that your lyrics were used in another TV show and you want some payment for that. Can you tell us what's going on with that? The tweet is, is Tina Fey, please give me $35. But there's a line in a song of mine, you snooze, you lose, I have snossed and lost. Mm-hmm. And John Hamm says that on an episode of uh, Kimmy Schmidt. Right. And I, I'm like, damn, man, like props to the writer that's a Mike Doty listener. But I would like $35 or a sandwich. And why $35? I have a joke about $35 with some friends of mine. Yeah. It's a sum of money that's weird to ask for. <laughs> like if, if you ask someone to borrow $20, yeah. it's like, okay, $40 is like, that's a lot. But $35, that's really <laughs> specific in a way that that is very odd. Like, hey, yeah. can I borrow $35? Like, yeah. What do you need $35 for? You're right. I have no I, I think if someone just randomly was like, "Hey Helen, can can I bum 35 bucks?" I'd be like, "Hmm." Yeah, that's weird. You're up to something nefarious. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And specific. And uh, how close do you think you are to getting it? I am uh, zero close. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll see I what we am can do. $0 close to $35. <laughs> Um, I think they would have to put me in the Writers Guild, and I don't think that's going to happen. All right. Well, we'll see what we can do, which actually is nothing. We're so happy that you joined us, Mike Doty. Hey. All right. Mike and Ting, we asked each of you to provide us with a few topics outside your field of work in which you feel you have some expertise. Ting, you said you know a lot about lyrics from the Backstreet Boys Millennium album, flavors of Swenson's ice cream, and Keiko, the whale from the movie Free Willy. Whereas, Mike, you said you know a lot about actor and dancer Louise Brooks, the Bible's Book of Revelation, and Watergate. Later on, we'll <laughs> ask you some in-depth trivia questions about one of those topics. But first, we're going to get your thoughts on something you might know nothing about. It's time to split some hairs with our What's the Difference round. We'll have one question for each of you, each worth up to two points. If either of you gives an incorrect answer or an incomplete answer, the other person has a chance to steal. Your topic today, fight or flight. First up in fight or flight is Mike with fight. Mike, your question comes from a listener. Who is it, Helen? It's from Lily. 
listener Aaron Snyder. Listeners, if you'd like to submit a suggestion for our What's the Difference round, go to gofactorpod.com and click on Get Involved. All right. Thank you, Aaron. Mike, Aaron's question is, while they both are a way to fight to make a point, what's the difference between statements that are contrary and statements that are contradictory? Contrary and contradictory. A statement that's contrary is like oppositional, mm-hmm. whereas a, a statement that's contradictory is simply a factual assertion. A factual assertion. Yeah, like, like a, a, a contradiction is factual. Something that, that's contrary is uh, opinion-based, I guess you would say. Oh, okay. So opinion versus uh, factual. All right. Well, we've got Mike's answer. We don't know yet if he's entirely correct. Ting, if you don't think he's got it exactly right, you can steal anything you'd like to change or add. Yeah, I think contrary is a word that most people use. Contradictory is just a fancy word. Ah, okay. So, so, so one is just the more, the more luxury premium word than the other. Yes. All right. Well, it is contrary to public opinion to keep this segment going. So let's go to Helen Hong at the judges table for the facts. Here are the facts. A contrary statement presents an opposing idea to a statement where both statements cannot be true, but they both might be false. A contradictory statement presents an opposing idea to a statement where one statement is absolutely true and the other is absolutely false. For example, if I say I am 25 years old and Jay Keith says that I am 30 years old, both cannot be true. I can only be one age, but I don't have to be an age that is 25 or 30. So both statements might be wrong. Therefore, those statements about my age are contrary, and I'm not going to tell you which one is true. Now, if I say that I am Korean American and Jay Keith says that I am not Korean American, one of those has to be wrong. I either am or am not Korean American. There is no other option. So those statements are contradictory. And Jay Keith, you really shouldn't be making statements about my age or ethnicity in the first place. <laughs> you're, you're, so yeah, you're, um, you're right, Helen. I'm, I'm awkward. I really and... apologize for doing that in your example. Uh, <laughs> I will not contradict you, Helen. All right. How did our guest do? Well, Mike, you did say oppositional for contrary, and you did also say opinion-based. I'll I'll give you a point. Ting, I'm tempted to give you half a point because you said fancy word, but I'm not going to. Okay, well, you you somehow resisted temptation, Helen. Very admirable. Let's go up next in fight or flight. It's Ting with flight. Ting, while both might help you fly away from a fight, on the interior of an airplane, what's the difference between a cockpit and a flight deck? a cockpit, and a flight deck. A cockpit would be where the pilots are. The Mm -hmm. flight deck would be where the pilots get to hang out and look at the sky. Okay, (laughs) where they get to hang out and look at the sky. All right, we've got Ting's answer. We don't know yet if she's entirely correct. Mike, anything you'd like to add or change? I think maybe the flight deck is just the front part, Mm -hmm. whereas the cockpit is actually where the chairs are. Where the chairs literally are. just the chairs and the and the they're not called steering wheels. Whatever you call a steering wheel <laughs> yes. on a plane. Wherever, wherever those are. Whatever those yeah. are to drive the plane. All right. Well drive the plane. This segment is hitting some turbulence. Let's go to Helen Hong at the judges table for the facts. Here are the facts. A cockpit is the seat or seats on an airplane surrounded by controls where a pilot or multiple pilots maneuvers the aircraft. A flight deck contains the cockpit, but also has some room to stand up and walk around. 
and may also contain additional jump seats. That's right. Now, in 2021, an FAA committee recommended changing the name cockpit to flight deck to make it more gender neutral, which makes me wonder what exactly male pilots (laughs) are doing in those seats. Helen, how did our guest do? Ting, I think I'm going to give you both points. Yeah, because you said the cockpit is where the pilots drive the plane, and then you said the flight deck is kind of where they hang out. Where they hang out. Which which is true. Yes. 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 I I also love the definition of where the chairs are, because that's where I want to be. I want to be where the chairs are. Theoretically right. Yes, theoretically right. (laughs) Helen, what is our score at the end of that round? At the end of that round, Ting Lim has two points, and Mike Doty has one point. But those scores are bound to change as we move on to questions about topics our guests have chosen for themselves. That's all up ahead when we come back on Go Fact Yourself. Hey, it's Jake Keith here. While we have a little break in the show, wanted to let you know, in case you didn't already, we've got new merchandise. We've got updated T-shaped shirts. We've got brand new mugs in two, count them, two different sizes. And boy, could we use your support. If you want to get some of that new stuff, check it out at maxfunstore.com. That's maxfunstore.com and search for Go Fact Yourself. Thanks so much. We actually put a lot of work into designing these, and we hope you enjoy it. And uh, if these go well, maybe we'll get some new exciting products later in the year. That's it. I mean, if you want to enjoy some Magic Spoon or Butcher Box, uh, you're welcome to, but they're not paying us this week. This week on Bullseye, Tom Hanks, as you've never heard him before, mad. You moron. Thank you for the use of the turn signal. Way to use your blinker, idiot. That's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Welcome back to Go Fact Yourself with our guests, Ting Lim and Mike Doty. Once again, here's J. Keith Van Stratton. Thank you, Helen. All right, Ting, of your many interests, you told us you know a lot about lyrics from the Backstreet Boys Millennium album. Yes. Flavors <laughs> of Swenson's Ice Cream and Keiko the Whale from the movie Free Willy. Let's find out a little bit more about each of those. First, tell us what the Backstreet Boys Millennium album lyrics mean to you. It was the first album that I bought in high school, so it meant a lot. That was when music came in CDs back mm-hmm. in the day. I, and I that recall. was the boy. <laughs> yes. So that was the first CD that I bought after working my first job. So I was really proud of myself. Mm-hmm. And that album meant a lot to me because it was the first thing I actually bought with real money. Can you do the choreography? Yes, I did try that <laughs> badly with my MTV was a big thing in Singapore. So we'll wait for the MTV video to come out. And me and my brother and my sister would just try our best to do the <laughs> dance. Helen is doing a little bit of the dance. And, uh, <laughs> uh, listeners, I'm sorry you can't see that. There she goes. Uh, wh- what are some of the songs that are on there that uh, you like so much, especially lyrically? What what comes to mind when you think of that record? Oh, I love Larger Than Life mm-hmm. and Show Me the Meaning mm-hmm. of Being Lonely. That was the one that got me. Mm. I loved every sh- song. I identified with every song as a teenager, even though I didn't have the life experience. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just- <laughs> All right, next thing, you said you know a lot about the flavors of sweat. Swenson's ice cream. That was uh, Swenson's branch in Singapore, and that was my first job. I was started working in the ice cream parlor, and learned a lot about making ice cream and eating ice cream when the boss is not looking. <laughs> <laughs> Swenson's, of course, is a chain of ice cream shops that some of our listeners may be familiar with. Uh, there are some locations in America, and I believe a lot in Asia. It is like Hakenas, which is a different, like it's a higher tier brand of ice ah, cream, okay. and people just find it there's more flavors to it it has a couple of flavors like the sticky chewy chocolate which is like chocolate with fudge and 
like interesting flavors. That does mm. sound interesting. All right, and then yeah. finally, Ting, you said you know a lot about Keiko the whale from the movie Free Willy. Yes, I do. When the movie came out, I was very interested in freeing the killer whale, and I followed. I called the number. I gave my mom all the money in my bank account, and I said, "Please <gasps> donate this to the foundation." And she said, "Yeah,、wow. of course I will." That's right. I believe at the end of the movie, it, it ended with a, a phone number and、uh, for people to actually help support、yeah. orcas, and, and that was very.、Yes. That was a call to action for you. Wow! Yeah, but I didn't know that you needed to put in the country code to call the number. <laughs>、ah. So I was just calling a different hotline the entire time, and I would be confused and be like, "What's happening?" <laughs> I wanted to watch the movie, but we couldn't make it to the cinema. So when it came on TV, I was like, "Great!" Two years later, I got to watch the movie. So I was really like, <laughs> "All right." Well, to summarize, Ting, you said you know a lot about Backstreet Boys, Millennium albums, lyrics, flavors with a U. I should point out flavors of Swenson's ice cream and Keiko the whale <laughs> from the. The movie Free Willy. Today we're going to quiz you about Keiko the Whale from the movie Free Willy. Nice.、Uh, how often do you think you've seen the movie over the years? Not recently, I have to say, but I used to watch it every now and then.、Mm-hmm. It's an uplifting movie. I really like it. It is, and、uh, I'm curious why you chose the whale and not the movie as your topic. There was something about Keiko you 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 enjoyed his story going forward. Well, his story was a really sad one.、Mm-hmm. Um, But also, I was I, I used to watch a lot of David Attenborough、um, documentaries.、Mm-hmm. So being interested in captivity and and you know wildlife preservation was just a natural progression from that. Well, Ting, just ahead, we're going to enlist the help of a bona fide expert in your topic to test your mastery in the subject with an expert level question worth three points. But before that, to let you show your love, here are five trivia questions about your topic, each worth one point. If you want it, you're allowed to hint for any two of these five questions. Now, Mike, do listen closely because if Ting answers incorrectly, you can steal. By the way, Mike, how much do you know about Keiko the whale from the movie Free Willy? Oh, I'm going to say、uh, nothing. That's, okay. Yeah. Final answer. Nothing. Okay. Well, Ting,、uh, let's see if you let Mike、uh, prove that. <laughs> Here's your first question about Keiko the whale. Ting, Keiko was an orca, also known as a killer whale. But taxonomically, orcas are the largest member of what marine mammal family called Delphinidae, who were portrayed by five different animals in the classic TV show Flipper. The dolphin, Helen. That is correct. That is correct. You're on the board there with the point. Yes. Fun fact: the name killer whale used to be whale killer because supposedly orcas were first seen by sailors feasting on the flesh of a whale, which they may or may not have killed. The evidence is still out. <laughs> All right. Here's question number two. With his black and white color, triangular dorsal fin, and playful demeanor, Keiko seemed to be a lot like other orcas. But aside from being one of the few to have an IMDb page. He's distinctive in another way—a birthmark that looks like three dark spots or freckles. Where on Keiko's body was this birthmark? I think it was the belly. Helen, that is not correct. No, I'm terribly sorry, Mike. With a chance to steal, I'm going to say on the dorsal fin. Was it on the dorsal fin, Helen? That's what I said. It was not. No, but excellent use of listening to us say dorsal fin to know that there was one. <laughs> That's right. But no, that is not where the dark marks were.、Uh, sorry, no, we were looking for. It was just below his chin. Ah.、Uh. Fun fact: the part of the orca that we might call the chin—it wasn't really a chin—is actually their lower rostrum. What we might call their head is called their melon, which is also what we sometimes call our head. So not so different. <laughs> All right, Ting. No point there. Let's see if you can bounce back with question number three. Keiko got his name at the Mexican theme park where he was held in captivity. Despite him being in Mexico and despite him being a male, he was given the name Keiko, which was traditionally Japanese and traditionally feminine. According to BabyCenter.com and TheBump.com, Keiko can mean a few different things in Japanese. But which of the following is not one of them? Is it lucky child? 
happy child, blessed child, beautiful child, or adored one? I think happy child. Helen? That is not correct. No, I'm terribly sorry. Mike with another chance to steal. I'm going to say adored one because it doesn't have the word child in it. Helen? That is not correct. No, two steals, but two incorrect answers. I'm sorry. No points there for either of you. It is beautiful child. Beautiful child is not something that translates Mm. from Keiko. Fun fact, another well-known Keiko is actor Keiko Agena, who appeared as our Gilmore Girls expert on episode 90 of Go Fact Yourself. By the way, according to Wikipedia, Keiko can also mean silicon child which is what I call my phone. All right, here's question number four. You do have your two hints available. In Free Willy, it said that Willy is, quote, worth a million dollars. In actuality, Keiko was sold to that Mexican theme park for less than half of that. Within $50,000, how much was paid by the park to buy Keiko? Could I use one of my hints? Absolutely, Helen. How about that first hint? That amount converts to about 524974 Australia dollars or 472687 Singapore dollars. Right. Um, was that exchange rate as of today? Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> Damn, I don't... It's okay. We know, uh, we know, it's, less, we know it's less than 500000 and it's somewhere... $350,000? Helen? That is exactly correct. You got it exactly right. <laughs> wow. Yes. We were ready to give it to you within 50, but you nailed it. Very that nice. That is exactly correct. Yes. Wow. Fun fact, it cost an estimated $7.3 million to build a facility for Keiko to live in after the movie, not counting the 250 pounds of fish he ate every day. All right, Ting, you're back in it. Here's question number five. You still have another hint available. Not only is Keiko the most famous orca to be in a movie, he also has probably logged more miles in the air than any other orca, including his move to Oregon and his move back to European waters. Both benefited from the donation of airplane services, one from a shipping company and one from a branch of the military. What shipping company or what military branch contributed to these efforts? I think it was the American Air Force. Helen? That is correct. That is correct for the point. Congratulations. It was the U.S. Air Force. UPS was the shipping company. Fun fact, UPS donated its services to fly Keiko from Mexico to Oregon. And according to Entertainment Weekly, if he had been sent by USPS first class mail, it would have cost $12,338.62 and needed 38,558 stamps. Good luck getting those to stick on an orca. Uh, <laughs> all right, Ting, you bounced back well in that round. But now here's your expert level question that requires multiple answers. It is time for your cluster fact. <laughs> we'll be bringing on an expert to discuss your response. Ting, Keiko had a happy ending in the movie when a human child, Jesse, helps to, and I hope this is not a spoiler alert, free Willy. In real life, though, things were a bit more complicated as Keiko had a hard time adjusting being the first captive orca to try new life in the wild. So, for up to three points, in what country's waters was Keiko first captured, a capture depicted in the opening scenes of Free Willy? Next, in what country's waters was Willy, played by Keiko, released in the movie? And finally, in what country's waters did Keiko take his final swim after attempts to release him to the wild? I think it was Iceland where he was caught. Okay. He was um, freed in America and he's had his last swim in Norway. All right. 
Helen is taking note of those answers. We have an expert on hand who can tell us for sure. In fact, we have two. Helen, who do we have tonight? Joining us tonight are a senior scientist at the Greenland Climate Research Center who observed and wrote an acclaimed paper on the reintroduction of Keiko into the wild and the actor who played Jesse and freed Willie in the movie. <laughs> no way! <laughs> it's Dr. Melina Simon and Jason James Richter. Oh, wow. Hi. I'm here. Hello, Melina. <laughs> and hello, Jason. Hey, guys. How you doing? Wow. Hi. <laughs> crazy. It is crazy. It's wonderful to have you both here. Jason, let's start with you. Free Willy, the movie, it's really become an iconic film. So many people look on it with such wonderful memories. And I understand this was actually your first professional acting gig? Yes, it was. It was my first film. I was brand new to the town and I was auditioning at cattle calls and places like that. And I just walked into a, you know, a trailer on a dirt lot in Culver City and they said, hey, kid, you want to come back? And I'm, yeah, yeah, I want to come back. So I came back a bunch and eventually I auditioned for the executives and everybody at Warner Brothers. And um, a couple of weeks later, I was in Mexico making a movie. Tell us about meeting Keiko and, and working with Keiko. It was an incredible experience. I was first introduced to him by his trainers and they basically trained me to work with him. And so we spent about two weeks before principal filming began just working with the well, getting me comfortable with him, interacting with him, touching mm -hmm. him, feeding him. He was an incredible creature. It's a very intuitive, very intelligent animal. Wow. Did you know as a little kid that he could eat you? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's one of the blessings of being a child is that you just have no idea how dangerous the situation actually, <laughs> actually yeah. is. And so I, no, I had no idea. Yeah, when you're a kid, so much of the world is cute and deadly. Uh, <laughs> and I understand that even when you weren't shooting, you, you were there. You wanted to be there with Keiko while they were filming other scenes. I was with Keiko every single day of principal filming, which was almost six, seven weeks, except for a couple of days off that I mm -hmm. had on the weekends to go explore Mexico City itself. Mm -hmm. um, but it pretty much I lived with that will every single day. And what was it like to, to say goodbye at the end? It was very upsetting because at the end of the film, he, he could tell something was odd. He was circling the tank and he was very angry. Mm. He wouldn't perform. <gasps> right. And he, and he wasn't interested in taking direction or doing anything. And usually when that happened, you know, we'd go find something else to film. We'd just leave him alone until he was comfortable. And he had been struggling to get his full body out of the tank because it was meant for, for smaller porpoises, dolphins. It wasn't mm. meant for an orca. He actually at some point breached his entire body <gasps> out of the tank and smashed everybody, Whoa. just gouged us all in water. We all took that to interpret him as being upset that we were leaving because mm. we were literally yeah. grounds up the next day. We were on a flight <gasps> to Portland, Oregon to continue work. That makes wow. me really upset. He <laughs> was 14 tons was... too. He was big. Well, let's talk with Dr. Simon about that. First of all, thank you. You're joining us from Greenland, uh, which I believe yeah. is our first guest from, uh, from that country. Tell us, how did you come to study Keiko? I was a student back then and uh, my husband was was hired by, by the team to track Keiko and to help out with the release. And um, I was working on the wild killer whales, doing sound recordings and monitoring their social behavior and and, and feeding behavior. And um, so I was joining this, the boats um, when we were going out with Keiko. And um, then I, he was sometimes near the wild whales and I would be 
yeah. recording them and observing their behaviors. You ended up writing this very influential paper that we'll talk about in a moment. But one of the things I thought was so interesting about it was that Keiko actually had to be trained on how to be wild. Tell, tell us about that. When a whale is captured in the wild, you have to... It's a terrible term, but you, it, it's called you break it. You have to teach it to, to eat uh, dead fish. Um, mm. And that can <gasps> take a very long time. And once that's done, it's really hard to get an, a whale to eat live fish. That was very difficult with Keigo, and we actually don't know if he ever if he ever did that. Interesting. Nice. This paper that you wrote received international press attention, and, and your conclusion in it was that Keiko really wasn't chosen for release based on him being suitable for release. It was based on just that people wanted this to happen, that he wasn't a great candidate for release. What, what would have been the optimal outcome other than just bringing him into the wild? What do you wish would have happened uh, for Keiko? I think um, the release was what I experienced was that it was very stressful for him. Um, he right. really liked humans. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he did. He did. He loved yeah. them. And actually, at the end of his life, he was going up into the fjords and people were letting their kids get on him and ride what? around on him. What? In the bays. Jeez. They were, and he was not, you know, he was, he, like she says, he was, in, he loved people. He was used to people. Yeah. <gasps> it was a big storm and he, he actually took off from Iceland and we, we could keep contact with him on a satellite tech. Actually, I have it here. So <laughs> that oh, that was Keiko's tag. Wow. <laughs> oh, that's so sweet. Wow. Um, but um, yeah. And then he just continued moving towards the Faroe Islands and we could, we could follow him and then the trainers would fly to the pharaohs to see if they could <laughs> catch up with him there. And then he kept swimming to Norway and yeah. the trainers went there with the biologist. They saw him. He was he was just in a bay and he was having a good time, but he was very close to the shore. It was a bit of a sad ending, but I think part of the happiness is you can see yeah. how much people still care about him uh, to this day. Jason and, and Doctor, I want to talk with you a bit about what you've been up to uh, since. And I know, Jason, that you've continued to act. You appeared, of course, in the sequels, but also as an adult, you've been in TV shows and movies. And uh, you've gotten into producing. Tell us about your latest project that actually features some legends from the horror genre of all things. Yeah, I just had a lot of fun. I just produced an independent horror film with Robert England, Daniel Harris, Bill <gasps> Mosley. What? And, yeah, and a, and a and a all new young cast of uh, young kids. It's sort of a Stand by Me meets The Goonies meets Halloween Four kind of vibe. Fun. <laughs> it's definitely it's going to be family friendly. It's definitely yeah. not going to be a gore fest. Um, and then before right. that, you know, it's just making a lot of just you know doing little things here and there. I was in uh, the little things last year with Denzel Washington and Jared Leto and. Rami Malek and producing other little films and things. I'm I'm in, I'm actually working on a series kind of loosely based on my life called Dolphin Boy right now. Oh my god, perfect. Uh, <laughs> so that'll be sort of a, an amalgamation of my experience as a young man and then my life now. And Very cool. Kind of stuff. Wow. So, and that horror film that uh, that family horror film that you're producing is called Natty Knox. And Dr. Simone, you've continued to work on climate change and specifically the effects on marine mammals in the Arctic. You mentioned that you make these underwater recordings uh, all over Greenland. I'm curious, what have you heard that maybe you weren't expecting to hear from these underwater recordings? One thing was that we, we could hear fin whales in the far north during the winter time. That was not something we expect back mm -hmm. then. And we do hear a lot of completely amazing sounds from, from different animals. 
but I, that's also what I do expect. So yeah. <laughs> you did expect yeah. that, yeah. <laughs> do you have a favorite sound that you uh, pick up underwater? Something you always look forward to hearing? Yeah, I love belugas. They're like yeah. the canaries mm. underwater, and I, I love bowhead whales. They're they're not very beautiful, but it's pretty impressive anyway. So. Can you yeah. mim- can you mimic the sound? Is it like? No, <laughs> 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 that's that, that's for the associate staff to do. Uh, the, <laughs> the leader doesn't do that. Ba-doo, ba-doo. <laughs> Tell me if I'm close. <laughs> yeah, that sounds a little bit more like Cardi B, Helen, but I'm no expert. <laughs> I, really, I really would like to, to say something. I mean, yeah. It, in regards to Kago, because it's, it didn't end that bad. I mean, we're all going to die at some point, but he did have some really nice years with his trainers in a pen, sea mm-hmm. pen in Norway, and no public, yeah. and no, no people coming near him except the people that he were really close to. That sense, I actually think, for Keiko, it was a happy ending. Oh, that's great to hear. And obviously, I think the optimal uh, thing would have been, don't yeah. capture him in the first place. Absolutely. <laughs> let let absolutely. them swim in the wild. Yeah. Yeah, I've always made that argument that, you know, there's a fine, you know, you can have um, aquariums and things, but you don't need a show Mm. Um, because aquariums do a lot to to do research on marine biology animals. It's a very important research and work that these companies, I believe wholeheartedly that they could afford to sponsor this stuff without turning a show in. You know what I mean? People will still Mm. pay a ticket to Mm. go in an aquarium. And if you want to see whales, there's plenty of live experiences around that, you you know, you can get access to and do. Excellent. Well, we we appreciate wrapping up on that message. Let's get to the reason we brought both of you here as far as our game is concerned. You heard the questions we asked of Ting. First, we wanted to know in what country's waters was Keiko captured? Helen, what did Ting say? Ting said Iceland. And I'll go to the doctor and Jason on this one. What do you say? Yep. (laughs) That is correct. He was taken from Iceland. A point there for Ting. Next, we want to know in what country's waters was Willie in the movie, who was was played by Keiko, of course, released. What did Ting say, Helen? Ting said America. And Jason? Yep. (laughs) Yep, that is correct. Up there in the Pacific Northwest. Very good. That's another point for Ting. Finally, we want to know in what country's waters did Keiko take his final swim after attempts to release him to the wild? Helen, what did Ting say? Ting said Norway. And Doctor? That's correct. That is correct. Three for three in the cluster for Ting. Very nice job. Applause from Jason James Richter. Ting, while we have our two experts here, is there anything you'd like to ask or say to them? I just love the conservation work that, like, you know, you guys do, Dr. And um, no, yes. she's, she's the conservationist. I'm just the bobbleheaded actor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she's actually the scientist with the degree, so it's all her. <laughs> I was always wondering, like, when you were there, like when you saw the whale for the first time, like Keiko, were you what? What did you feel like when you got the movie? Were you excited? Were you like scared when you saw the whale? Did you go like, oh, I'm going to be in the tank with this creature? <laughs> <laughs> like it would have scared me a little bit. I'll be oh, excited yeah. too. I yeah. was very excited. The first time I met him, I remember coming down the stairs of the aquarium and seeing him in the water. And I remember being with the producers and they were like, you know, this is you guys are going to be together now for a bunch of weeks doing this. And I just thought to myself, this is impossible. This is not happening. Wow. Like, I actually I'm allowed to go and play with this animal. And of course, at yeah. first, you know, and then, you know, as weeks go by, um, I started realizing, you know, he was in captivity. 
and and yeah. and what the the higher meaning of all of the you know the producers mm. that made the film they were uh active in the animal rights community already and so the film for them was a, was a talking piece to what they felt you know mm. about these kinds of animals in captivity so come to understand that yeah. later on as an older person i'm deeply grateful for the film the experiences I'm deeply grateful that it had such a positive message and that there were kids like you, Ting, that saw that and that wanted to donate. You are a blessing. That is the most incredible thing oh, I've ever you. heard. Mm. And I and I hope that people in the future will realize that, uh, you know, cinema, it can only it can not only be entertaining, but it can also be a, a, a positive force for good, for something decent in the world. So and I feel like Free Willy was. I know it's a kid's movie and it's silly and this and that, but I think the message that it imparted on a generation is extremely important so that the doctor can continue her work, you know? Mm. Well, that's wonderful to hear. Well, it's wonderful that you both were able to join us. If people want to find out more about what you're up to, uh, Dr. Simon, where can people find you? I'm at the Greenland Institute of Natural Resources in Nuuk, Greenland, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. You can find the website. We'll link to that from yeah. our show notes. And uh, Jason, where can people find what you're up to? Um, if you're curious, I'm on Instagram at Jason underscore James underscore Richter. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much for joining us. Jason James Richter and Dr. Melina Simon. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Helen, what is our score at the end of that round? At the end of that round, Ting Lim has eight points and Mike Doty has one point with a round of <laughs> questions for Mike coming up. That's right. We're going to talk with Mike about a topic he knows about. Plus, later, Ting and Mike will go head to head in our Fast Facts round to find a winner on Go Fact Yourself. parenting. It's hard, but don't worry, you're not alone. Belly up to the low bar with one bad mother and let us remind you that fine is good enough. They want to climb on different things. And how am I supposed to keep them both from dying? (laughs) There is a right way to do this. And if I can figure out that right way, I'm going to be a good parent. So that is not a thing. So join us each week and let us tell you that you are doing a good job. You can listen to One Bad Mother on Maximum Fun or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Go Fact Yourself with our guests, Ting Lim and Mike Doty. Once again, here's J. Keith Van Stratton. Thank you, Helen. All right, Mike, of your many interests, you told us you know a lot about the actor-dancer Louise Brooks, the Bible's Book of Revelation, and (laughs) Watergate. Let's find out a little bit about those eclectic interests. First, tell us what Louise Brooks means to you. When I was a teenager, I just became fascinated with um, pictures of 20s uh, movie stars. It was the 80s. It was a dreadful, dreadful time for the way people looked in pop culture. <laughs> and I was just became fascinated with Louise Brooks. I saw uh, Pandora's Box and I read the Barry Paris uh, biography. I got a tattoo of her. Oh, no. Whoa, really? Yep. When tattoos in New York City were illegal. So I got it from some uh, sketchy dude. You were willing to go to jail in order to display your love of Louise Brooks. I mean, I think it's more the risk of tetanus and perhaps more uh, importantly, the risk of a terrible looking tattoo. Losing, um, losing a limb. You were willing to lose a limb 
to yes. show your love of Louise wow. Brooks for Louise. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, for we'll Louise. see if you're we'll see if you're as dedicated to your other topics. Tell us a little bit about what the Bible's Book of Revelation means to you. So again, returning to my uh, teenage years in the '80s, the time of heavy metal, the time of satanic heavy metal. All the Iron Maiden stuff and all the satanic battle stuff mm-hmm. was really kind of this weird pro-Christian thing, right? Interesting. Um, so I read the book of Revelation. The language is so beautiful. It's so surreal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for years, I worked on kind of not really a rock opera, but sort of an oratorio where the, the, uh, the reading of the text would be set to music. And I staged it for WNYC a few years ago, and uh, I'm just a big, big fan of Jesus destroying the world and marrying a city. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of the battle of good and evil, you finally said you know a lot about Watergate. Yes. (laughs) I saw one of the Watergate hearings when I was three or four years old. Um, It must have been 74, so I must have been almost four years old. Um, but they canceled Saturday morning cartoons for it. <gasps> they showed the Watergate hearings on every channel, literally like all 13 channels of, you know, 70s broadcast television. There were cartoons on none of them. And it was it was an outrage. And I just kept turning my dad and being like, why would they do this on all the channels? When can this possibly end? <laughs> But then later, um, uh, my mom was really into Doonesbury, mm-hmm. and it was all about Watergate. It was all, uh, you know, the, the golden age of Doonesbury was like the, the early to mid-70s, and that kind of sparked a fascination with Nixon. The anniversary of the break-in was um, last June, mm-hmm. and my bass player actually called me up and was like, hey, man, <laughs> I, I know it's... Uh, it's the anniversary. It's 50th anniversary of the break-in. I just wanted to say uh, happy break-in anniversary. <laughs> what do you like, get? What do you get someone for a 50th break-in anniversary? I don't know. He didn't get me a gift, but really the call was very thoughtful. That's great. All right. Well, to summarize, Mike, you said you know a lot about Louise Brooks, the Bible's Book of Revelation, and Watergate. Today we're going to quiz you about Watergate. All right. What aspect of Watergate most interests you now, do you suppose? I think the contrast with the Trump era, Mm -hmm. we're talking about an insanely smart, competent person Mm -hmm. that just had this weird resentment that just seized up his whole existence. And And to be clear, you're talking about Nixon in that example. I'm talking about Nixon. Okay, just want to make sure. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And the attachment to power, very poignant in in these times, is in the end, everyone obeyed the law. Right. In the end, um, the threat of impeachment drove Nixon out of office. Wow, that Um, is so refreshing. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Imagine that. Isn't that. Weird. So he didn't have to go through two actual impeachments. Just the threat of no, one was enough. Very just interesting. The, just the threat of one. Yeah, the threat of one. Wow. Well, just ahead, we're going to enlist the help of a bona fide expert in your topic to test your mastery in the subject with our expert level question worth up to three points. But before that, to let you show your love, here are five trivia questions about your topic, each worth one point. Now, if you want it, you're allowed to hint for any two of these five questions. Now, Ting, do listen closely because if Mike answers incorrectly, you can steal. Ting, by the way 
how much do you know about Watergate? Not a lot in comparison. <laughs> yeah. Well, you grew up in, in Singapore. Uh, was it covered there? Yes, it was covered, but I was never really listening in school. So oh, okay. Well, <laughs> finally, there might be consequences for that. We'll see. Yes. <laughs> All right, Mike, here's question number one. I have a feeling you're going to get this correct. The Watergate scandal was a series of interlocking scandals that followed the arrest of five burglars at Democratic National Committee headquarters in the Watergate Office Apartment Hotel Complex in Washington, D.C. in June of what presidential election year? 1972. That is correct. Happy anniversary. Yes, it was 1972, <laughs> 50 years ago this year. Fun fact, if you wanted to stay at the Watergate Hotel today as we record this, rooms range from $307 for the Superior Suite to $9,369 for the, perhaps ironically named, Presidential Suite. Yes. <laughs> All right. Mike, here's question number two. Of those five burglars we mentioned, four had been active in CIA activities against Fidel Castro in Cuba. The fifth, James W. McCord, was the security chief of an organization tied to President Nixon known as CREEP. What did CREEP stand for? Committee to reelect the president. Helen? That is correct. That is correct. Very nice. It was officially called CRP, but people jokingly <laughs> called it creep, yeah. including Republicans like Bob Dole, who became President Ford's running mate and is credited by some with coming up with that nickname. You're two for two, Mike. Here's question number three. In February of 1973, less than a year after the burglary, in what seems impossible now, the Senate voted unanimously to establish the Senate Select Committee on Presidential Campaign Activities, which would become widely known as as the Watergate Committee. Not only did those members share a common purpose, many shared a suffix, but which one of the following senators was not on that committee? Was it Sam Irvin Jr., Howard Baker Jr., Lowell Weicker Jr., John Glenn Jr., or Edward Gurney Jr.? I don't think Glenn was on. I feel like I would have had a specific memory of Glenn. You're going to say John Glenn Jr. Helen? That is correct. That is correct, Mike. Very yes. well done. Fun fact, John Glenn was in the Senate but didn't join until later in 1974. The others on the committee were Daniel K. Inouye, Joseph Montoya, and Herman Talmadge. Another notable junior was serving his first term in the Senate that year, a 30-year-old Joseph R. Biden Jr. All right, Mike, you are three for three. Here's question number four. You do have your two hints available. Those hearings understandably put pressure on President Nixon, as did the work of special prosecutor Archibald Cox. The pressure reached a boiling point on October 20th, 1973, with what came to be known as the Saturday Night Massacre, when Nixon insisted that Cox be fired. Attorney General Elliot Richardson refused and resigned. Then Deputy Attorney General William Ruckelshaus refused and resigned. And finally, Nixon turned to his solicitor general, who was indeed solicitous, and fired Cox. Who was this solicitor general? That would be Robert Bork. Helen? That is correct. That is correct. Very well done wow. for the point. Fun fact, on the Tuesday following the Saturday Night Massacre, 21 resolutions for Nixon's impeachment were introduced on Capitol Hill. All of this is blowing my mind, by the way. <laughs> yes, just how different things considering were. Considering yeah. the context that we're living in right yeah. now, I'm like, the yes. wait, unanimous? What? It's weird to be wistful <laughs> and long for the good old days of Watergate, and yet here we are. Right. Yeah, it's, it's freaky, man. Mike, you have four for four. You have a chance to go five for five if you can get this one correct. You do have your hints available. On August 8, 1974, in a televised address, President Nixon announced he would, quote, resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. 
On August 9, he submitted his resignation in a one-line letter. In accordance with the 1792 law, to what office holder did he address this letter of resignation? Oh, uh, I think I, I, uh, I think it was the Secretary of State. I think it was Kissinger. You're going to go with that? Well, you know what? I'm going to take the hint. All right, Helen, how about that first hint? This may prove helpful. The person in that role then was Henry Kissinger. The person the Secretary of State. The person in that role now is Anthony Blinken. Mike, would you like to change your answer? The Secretary of State. Helen? That is correct. Mike Doty is five for five. <laughs> Very nice job, Mike. <laughs> Fun fact, that resignation letter became effective when Secretary of State Henry Kissinger initialed it at 11.35 a.m. Nixon was a little early on his promise of noon. All right. Mike, you obviously did very well in that topic, but now here's your expert level question that requires multiple answers. It is time for your cluster fact. We'll be bringing on an expert to discuss your response. Mike, the main reason we know as much about Watergate as we do was the intrepid reporting of Washington Post journalists Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. In addition to his contemporaneous newspaper reporting, Bob Woodward has written or co-written five best-selling books about Watergate, the people involved with Watergate, and or the legacy of Watergate. For up to three points, name any three of those five best-selling books. Oh, my God. I mean... I can name all his Trump books. Um, <laughs> okay. Wow. Um, Just take it one at a time. There's there's one very, uh, very, very well-known one that I'm sure you well, know. All the President's Men. Okay. And then his other books, man. Oh, dude. And I've read them. That's the thing. I've read them. I've read. I've read all this. Stuff. All right. Well, let's just just do your best to guess guess a couple more titles, or you just want to stick with all the presidents. Made? Well, I know. I'm just going to pretend that Rage, which okay. is about Trump, was one of them. <laughs> okay. And then I don't even remember what the what the last one was. Fear. Okay. Which I know it's not about Nixon, but I know. Maybe I'll get a quarter of a point. All right. Well, Helen is taking note of those answers. We have an expert on hand who can tell us for sure. Helen, who do we have tonight? Joining us tonight is an associate editor of The Washington Post who has shared in two Pulitzer Prizes for journalism, including for coverage of the Watergate scandal with Carl Bernstein, it's legendary journalist Bob Woodward. What? (laughs) Hello, Bob Woodward. Are you there? Oh, my God. Wow. Thank you. Bob, it's really oh my you. God. It's really you. Yeah, okay. Can, can I, I wrote out some questions. And the first one, Mike, is you said there were lots of people in the Nixon White House who were smart. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bob, like a great journalist you are, you come in with the follow-up questions ready. We certainly appreciate that. <laughs> I would assert maybe... If not, um, let's say a great human being, Kissinger was smart, um, maybe, and then Mitchell didn't seem like a dummy to me, but you're about to tell me otherwise. You're about to no, wreck and, shop. And, and I just think, I mean, one of the things I often try to talk about or think about, what are the lessons of Watergate? And mm-hmm. one of them is to try to understand what your real self-interest is. And if Nixon had understood his self-interest, he would have realized that 
there's the press out there, there are the congressional investigators, there are people who don't like him, and they're looking for an opportunity to come out after him. And so he could have just said right after the Watergate burglary, I'm the guy at the top, I apologize, you know, we're going to get all the dumb people out of my government <laughs> and White House, and it might have gone away. Mm. But instead, he engaged in the disease of denial. The cover-up can be worse than the crime, they say. Yes, and though the crime was pretty bad. Oh, yeah, I'm not saying that. And, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not saying it was great. I'm not a fan of the crime. Yes, and... Yeah. and uh, Often people talk about what was Watergate. Mm -hmm. And it was Senator Irvin who chaired that Senate committee that investigated Watergate. Irvin said Watergate was an effort to destroy the integrity of the process of nominating and electing a president. Mike, mm -hmm. do you remember how many states Nixon won? in 1972. 49. That's something I wanted to ask you, because that's something I hadn't realized as I was revisiting the timeline, was that you and Carl had huge front page articles as of October, and he still was reelected in this landslide in November. Did you think, well, that's it, the people have spoken, they're not interested in anymore? How, how did he hang on so long? That's an important question. And the reason is no one believed us. Mm. Because it seemed inconceivable because lots of people like Mike thought Nixon was smart. And uh, he would <laughs> be too smart to be involved in something like this. Nixon had a lust for political power. I think Trump suffered from this uh, same disease. Quite mm. Well, uh, let me ask you about this. Uh, Helen mentioned, of course, you've shared in two Pulitzer Prizes. You've had 21 best-selling books, 15 number one bestsellers, just about every journalism award there is. And yet your latest project is not a book that you can read. It's something on audio. Tell us about the Trump tapes and why you wanted to share material in that format. Yes, for the second book, Rage, uh, which is a very uh, detailed look at what Trump was doing in the year uh, he was running for re-election 2020. Uh, I taped with his permission all of these interviews. Early this year, I happened to go back and listen to them. And I was floored by how different the audio is of Trump versus Trump on the page. Hmm. When you have, as I do in these Trump tapes, uh, eight hours of Trump's voice, it's clearly his voice. Oh, my God. Jesus. And, yeah, I, I know. <laughs> I'm traumatized just thinking about that. it. They don't, you know, they don't have the emotional stamina. Yes. <laughs> it's, I'm, it's... I'm sure Mike would, though. But <laughs> yeah. I, I have reports from all kinds of people just saying, this is the best look at Trump. Mm. It's you're absolutely right. The way that he speaks is so much of who he is. Like you could see, you know, even the way he says the word China, yes. you know, if you were, if you read it on the page, yeah. you're just like, oh, that just says China. But when he's oh like, China, 
China. Yeah. Like it and literally it, yes, it makes you're exactly. Me- you got it right. You got it right. This takes you into the heart of darkness, is mm. one reviewer said. Well, I appreciate you're having fun with us, though, as we talk about these serious topics. Let's get to the reason that we brought you here as far as our game is concerned. You heard the question we asked of Mike. We wanted to know, what are three of the five best-selling books by someone named Bob Woodward uh, involving Watergate? <laughs> Helen, what was the first answer that Mike gave us? Mike said, all the president's men. And Bob? Yeah, that, uh, that's true. Yeah, that's I, true. Uh, somebody will stop me on the street and say, oh, all the president's men. Oh, what? and they'll talk. And I realize they're talking about the movie. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but there wouldn't have been a movie without the book and there wouldn't have been and a book I without you. Them, it was it was a book also. <laughs> <laughs> and they said they did a novelization of the movie. Oh, really? <laughs> and then somebody told me when I said there was a book to it, I think not. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. So we get a point there from Mike. Helen, what were Mike's other two answers? Mike said rage and fear. And Bob? I know. I know. No, but he knew those were Trump books. Right. So yes. uh, so the other ones were The Final Days that you wrote with Carl. Uh, you had Shadow, Five Presidents, and The Legacy of Watergate, The Secret Man, The Story of Watergate's Deep Throat, and The Last of the President's Men. Mike, while we have Bob here, anything you'd like to ask or say to him? Yeah, dude, Bob. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, um, I, do, I have uh, one very specific question, which I've always wondered about which is about the Butterfield testimony. Yeah. Oddly, I'm friends with Robert Costa, your co-author. Yes, um, yeah, that's the and, third Trump book, Peril. But, yeah. uh, Robert Costa is one of the great reporters of yes. all time, and he's only 37. And I ask him all the time, when Alexander Butterfield testified and revealed that there was a taping system in the Oval Office and other parts of the White House... Were the people in the hearing aware that he was going to testify that? Were they generally aware that there was something explosive that was going to be said? Or were they completely caught unawares? Well, two days before, I thought, wow, that's a hell of a story. And I checked it and I called Ben Bradley, the editor of The Post at Home, he said, well, don't bust one on it. I think it's only a B-plus story. And Mike, your question is a good one. They knew he was a secret witness. No one knew what he was going to say. The Watergate hearings were, it was really serious business. Now, to Bradley's credit, that morning after Butterfield testified in the, I mean, the there was a, a kind of 10 hundred foot wave that just swept. Oh my God. And Ben came by my desk, knocked his knuckle on the desk and said, okay, it's better than a B plus. <laughs> At least an A minus. Bob, it was such an honor for you to join us. I know you've got the Trump tapes that are currently out. If people want to find out more about you and your work, where can they do that? Um, they can Get the Trump tapes and listen. I I have not (laughs) encountered anyone, and it's sold thousands and thousands of copies, anyone who is disappointed. In fact, the reaction is, ah, now I understand. 
Wow. Bob, thank you again so much for joining us, especially I know it's been a crazy news week. We really appreciate your making the time. Bob Woodward, everybody. Yay. Thank you. All right, Helen, what is our score as we go into the final round? Ah. Ooh, it's a tight game, Jay Keith. At the end of that round, Ting Lim has eight points and Mike Doty has seven points. Oh, very nice comeback from Mike. But now it is time for our final round we call Fast Facts. I'll read 10 statements and each contestant will answer with true or false. I'll start with Ting and alternate between each guest. Each correct answer is worth one point. And again, the answer to each statement is true or false. Here we begin. Ting, the World Cup of Soccer, or football, was played in 2022. False. Incorrect. No, it was just played uh, in 2022. Mike, the World Cup had a mascot. True. Correct. Ting, the World Cup has had a mascot since the first one was played in 1930. True. Incorrect. No, I'm terribly sorry. Mike, the first World Cup mascot was England's in 1966. True. Correct. Ting, that mascot was a lion. True. Correct. Yep, Willie the lion. Mike, Russia's World Cup mascot was a wolf. False. Incorrect. Nope, Ah. it was Zabivaka the wolf, or Zabivaka the wolf. It was a wolf. Ting, South Africa's World Cup mascot was a leopard. False. Incorrect. Nope, it was Zakumi the leopard. Mike, Brazil's World Cup mascot was an armadillo. (laughs) Oh, uh, uh, false. Incorrect. Nope, it was Fuleco. (laughs) Fuleco, the three-banded armadillo. Ting, the United States World Cup mascot was an eagle. True. Incorrect. No, it was a puppy. Striker, the World Cup pup. Mike, Mexico's World Cup mascot was a jalapeno pepper. (laughs) That's a, I'm going to say false. No, it really was. <laughs> it was called PK, the jalapeno pepper. Ting, Pico, the jalapeno pepper, wore a sombrero. True. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. Mike, yes. Mike, PK had a mustache. Is it true? Correct. Ting, despite being a jalapeno, PK had arms and legs. True. Correct. Have Mike, despite being a jalapeno, PK had teeth and could talk. Yeah, true. Correct. <laughs> Ting, PK was criticized for evoking antiquated stereotypes about Mexicans. True. Correct. And finally, Mike, but not for having arms, legs, teeth, and being able to talk. True. Yes, correct. <laughs> All right, we're not going to count those last few. I want to thank Ting Lim and Mike Doty as Helen tabulates the final score. All right, Helen, are you ready to announce a winner on today's show? Jay Keith, guess what? What? It's a tie! Whoa! Yes, what? at the end of the true-false round, Ting Lim has nine points and Mike Doty has nine points. Oh, my goodness. That means we have to go to our tiebreaker. All right, Ting and Mike, here's how the tiebreaker works. I'm going to ask you a question. The answer to that question is a number. Now, whoever gets closer to the correct number wins. Now, we do not play prices Right style, so no guessing $1. (laughs) So think about it, and then I'll ask you to blurt out your answers at the same time on the count of three. So don't answer right away. Here is your question. As of this recording, how many cruise ships are operated by Princess Cruise Lines? How many cruise ships around the world are operated by Princess Cruise Lines? Think about it for a moment, and on the count of three, one, two, three. 35. 89. All right, Ting says 89, Mike says 35. The actual answer, 15. That means, Mike, you were closer. Congratulations, Mike. You are the facting champion on Go Fact Yourself. What will you do with your championship? I don't know. I'm just excited I got the Robert Bork question right. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really excited about that because I always get Ruckelshaus and Jaworski mixed up. (laughs) 
<laughs> in the Saturday Night who Massacre, doesn't? and I, mean, I just who doesn't? Who doesn't? And, and I just the Robert Bork just rolled off my tongue. I could, I was so, I was so happy. You would be amazed how many of our guests mention Robert Bork when you ask what they're going to do with their championship. <laughs> yes. All right, we're just going to give everyone here an opportunity to uh, promote anything they might want. Uh, Ting Lim, where can people find you and what you're up to? Oh, you can find me on Instagram and Facebook, uh, Ting Lim Comedy, or my website tinglim.com. Excellent. We're so happy that you joined us from so far away, especially Ting Lim. All right, Mike Doty, where can people find you and what you're up to? I am at Mike Doty Ghost of Room on TikTok, and uh, I think at Mike underscore Doty underscore everywhere else where there can be a human. Excellent. Well, we're happy that uh, you're a human joining us today on the show. (laughs) Mike Doty, thanks so much for making time for us. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, my hosting partner is Helen Hong. Helen, where can people find you? You can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at funny Helen Hong. It's got to be funny Helen Hong because that other Helen Hong, is she funny? No, no, she's not. She is not, but you are funny. You are Helen. You are Hong. You are Helen Hong. Uh, And me, you can find me on Twitter at J underscore Keith or on Instagram at jkeith.net, all spelled out. That just leaves me to thank Ting Lim, Mike Doty, Dr. Melina Simon, Jason James Richter, Bob Woodward, and thank you for listening and supporting our show at MaximumFun.org. I'm J. Keith Van Stratton. Good night. Like what you hear? Come see us live. It's happening again. Go to GoFactorPod.com for our schedule and tickets. And come see us at KPCC's Crawford Family Forum on Saturday, February 11th. Meanwhile, please like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter and Instagram, all at GoFactorPod, update our wiki at GoFactorWiki.Fandom.com, and buy our T-shaped shirt and mug-shaped mug at MaxFunStore.com. And give us a great review on your favorite podcast platform, like FL Library Girl did on Apple Podcasts. He, she, or they said, I listened to one episode and was instantly hooked. You cannot ask for more from a podcast. Purple heart emoji. Oh, thanks, FL Library Girl. I'm going to upgrade that to a red heart emoji. Ellen? Go Fact Yourself is a panel quiz program devised and produced by Jim Newman and Jake Heath and Stratton and comes to you via transcription from various homes across the country. Questions were compiled by the Trivia Industrial Complex. We are produced in collaboration with Maximum Fun. Maximum Fun senior producer is Laura Swisher. Associate producer and editor and wind beneath our wings is Julian Burrell. Our show engineer and sound master is Dave McKeever. Our theme song and incidental music were written and performed by Jonathan Green. Research assistance provided by Adam Needif. Quiz assistance provided by Clint Tauscher and Brian Phillips. Promotional graphics by Erich Tran. Added support from Dave Bianchi and Christine Velada. Special thanks to Denny Severe at the House of Representatives Talent Agency, Robert Burnett at Williams Connolly, Eileen Boyle at Audier Media, Ken Weinstein at Big Hassle Media, and Steph Tisdell. I've been Helen Hong. Let's go do a Watergate. And and not ride an orca. Yeah, lesson learned. <laughs> MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture Artist owned Audience supported